I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. So we're here to celebrate this new novel by Sarah. It's my great privilege and honour and pleasure to be Sarah's editor at Granta. This is the third book we've done together. Uh, I, we'll talk about this book and, uh, and possibly if we have time we might talk about the editing process because Sarah and I have, I, I, I hope that we have a good relationship. I think we have a good relationship. It's going well. <laughs> Is it going well? Yes. <laughs> um, but we have, uh, in, in some respects, um, a, good, a good editorial relationship in terms of a, a novelist, a case study of a novelist working with their editor in as much as we have a very discursive relationship and we talk in some depth about projects before they are born, as they are born, right the way through to the point where one of the things we, we uh, take most seriously at Granter is the involvement of an author throughout the process. So, so we discuss covers publicity and we work we work as a team and it's a, it's a good thing and I know that Sarah has some things to say about that so if we get there we'll do it. I wanted to start with a reading and Sarah has agreed to, to read two bits from the book, one now and one a bit later. Um, so let's have another round of applause for Sarah Moss. Okay. Um, the section I'm going to start with is called The Arithmetic of Staying Alive. And this is quite near the beginning of the book, but it's not at the beginning. So the book is about a family rebuilding normal life or building a new normal after nearly losing a child. And at this point, the emergency has happened. Um, the child has collapsed on the school playing fields and been rushed to hospital. And this is the first pause. This is the, the moment after the acute emergency. She's been admitted. She's been through resuscitation. They're on the ward. And there's this strange moment where the emergency is clearly not over, but it seems to have paused. And it's the first time that Adam, who's our narrator, is really able to think about what's been happening. The arithmetic of staying alive. It was important to tell people, to let people know that this can happen. Your child's body can stop. Stop breathing, stop beating. At any time, her lungs can close down. The wing beat that began in her heart before her bones were formed, before the fetus to be Miriam had a spinal cord or a skull, can pause and fall tumbling. And then blood pools in your child's veins. It stagnates. And your daughter's cells have no more oxygen, her muscles no more sugar. There is no more movement, no thinking. Where the body's metronome ticked, there is silence. She goes away. It can happen. It had happened. I needed to tell people that the world was not as they believed it to be. I asked Miriam if she'd be all right while I made some calls. She was eating a pot of yoghurt by then, sitting up in bed on the high dependency unit with the monitor's wires creeping through the ripped and muddy vestiges of her school uniform. Fasten your shirt, I wanted to say. Pull up the blanket. We can see your bra. OK, she said. Actually, I might watch some TV, since it's here, since they seem to think we need it, along with the oxygen and the intubation kits here on the high dependency unit. Are you sure, I thought, 
because she never watches it at home, accuses her mother of being hooked on the opiate of the masses, stands about pointing out that costume dramas feed the English fetish for poshness, for the adulation of unearned wealth and privilege, that the news is hopelessly parochial, and the cookery shows Emma enjoys glorify not only domestic labour, but the consumption of exactly the ingredients we're all being told to avoid. It's an eating disorder on a national scale, she says, watching Emma watching people ice cakes with butter and cream and chocolate, and fill pies with caramel and condensed milk. We're all obsessed with obesity and weight loss and also fucking baking. Shut up, darling, Emma says. I've been working with the obese and malnourished all day. Have a biscuit. Let me watch a little rubbish before I go to bed. Make your calls, Dad, Mim said. And she pressed a couple of buttons and filled the room with synthetic American laughter. I feel for Miriam in ways I haven't really felt about characters in fiction, mainly that I wished I had a mobile number <laughs> so that I could just occasionally text something. And sometimes it would just be, be a bit nicer to your dad. Um, I wanted to start in, in, in the diary. I have one of those Faber poetry diaries, and there's a poem every week. And I opened the diary, saw that this was the week that I was going to talk to Sarah here, and the poem opposite is Samuel Taylor Coleridge. The poem is, I stand alone, nor though my heart should break. And the final line of that poem is, her love was to my heart like the heart blood. And I thought, gosh, what a fantastic coincidence. Because I thought we could just run through your career to date, because it's interesting. What was your academic specialism? And would you just run through? Because you're still interested in what you were yeah. writing about yes. then. And it has been a sort of thread in what you've written about. Yes, so I think it's good true. as a piece of background. Yeah, OK. So I did a. Well, when I finished my BA, um, I kind of wanted to be a novelist, and everybody said, no, you should go get a proper job. So I did a PhD on romantic poetry. Um, and I wrote about the influence of Arctic travel writing on Wordsworth and Coleridge, because there were not enough PhDs on Wordsworth and Coleridge in the world already, um, and turned that into a, a really not very good book. And then I had a research fellowship, which I used to change tack completely and write about food, gender, and material culture in 18th century women's fiction. And I think, yeah, Max is right, both of those interests have stayed with me. And in some ways, I find, I mean, I'm still kind of haunted by the romantics. You can't spend four years reading romantic poetry and not have it deeply embedded in your brain. And in some ways, it's easy, I think, to see those poets as the enemy. I mean, if you're a feminist, if you're someone who's quite sceptical about nature writing, um, if you really don't like nostalgia as a mode of understanding the world, uh, Wordsworth is probably not the person you want in your head. But actually, I think there are lots of ways of redeeming Wordsworth, and that's probably one of the arguments that I'm having with myself and with my students quite a lot of the time. Wordsworth in the head, Coleridge in the bed. Or something. That no. would not be fun. Um, I'm going to read this. This is from Sarah's blog. Oh, no, is, which, it, is it a blog? You occasionally write really penetrating and brilliant things on, on your website. Probably not often enough for it to be a blog. This is brilliant. The serious study of history is probably the best protection against nostalgia. It helps if you're a woman working in a profoundly conservative field. The gender pay gap in academia is apparently intractable and surprisingly wide. Many of the senior men earning 50% more than I do for the same work are loudly nostalgic for the golden age of academia in which their working lives were unregulated and unaccounted, which also happens to be the years in which academia was even more white male and upper class than it is now. 
These men's outrage at the end of the university as gentlemen's club is unceasing and often dressed in the language of Marxism, in which, despite six-figure salaries and hours arranged to suit their convenience, some professors are able to imagine themselves as the oppressed proletariat. <laughs> you see, I'm reading what you're too polite to say. You're going I, to lose me my job. It's okay. <laughs> we'll find you another one. Also, this is out, in the, you put this in the public realm. I took it down and edited it and then put it back up again, but go on, it's too it's late. It's very now. good. <laughs> I've always, I've always been awed by the privileges of academic life, grateful to be well paid for work I enjoy, and in no way able to imagine my position in the world as unfortunate or oppressed. Any turning back of a historical clock would give me fewer opportunities and a harder time, because however much I might enjoy resenting the baby boomers for their free education, ride on the property market and final salary pension schemes, the women of that generation open doors for their daughters, and the women and men leave us equal opportunities legislation that makes it harder for racists, misogynists and homophobes to order our society. Yes! <laughs> is this pre-Brexit or what? No, that was post-Brexit. <laughs> so let's talk, we're going to talk a bit about your academic career, but let us talk because you've written these novels and the first ones I worked with you on were historical novels. Bodies of Light and Signs for Lost Children, which work in a sequence. They're both extraordinary books. I, I, I really think Bodies of Light is, is, a, is an important as well as extraordinary book. One of the reasons I think that is because of the ways it's not a historical novel. Yeah. And I wonder if you would speak mm, to that. Thank you. Um, so Bodies of Light is set in the second half of the 19th century. It runs from about the 1860s through to late 1870s, early 1880s. And it traces the life of one of the first women in Britain to become a doctor. She's fictional, but based on some real stories. Well, the character's not based on real stories, the events are. And I was thinking in that book about what Britain looked like before the welfare state, um, which seems to me to be a state to which we may be returning, and particularly thinking about how far back the roots of that kind of English liberalism go. That the welfare state wasn't invented out of nothing in the late 1940s. There were decades and decades of campaigning largely conducted by women, interestingly, um, going back into the middle of the 19th century. So, I mean, we joked at the time that I was writing a history of the welfare state in eight novels, which happily I haven't done. Um, but I was, I was interested in that kind of cultural archaeology and staking a sort of longer claim to the English liberal tradition than I think we very often see. But, that, but what of it as a historical novel? Because in a sense, you are, it's a revisionist. It's, it's yes. a 19th century novel, but it doesn't obey any of the rules, or it doesn't, it's not buying into any of the assumptions or constrictions of the 19th century novel. It's a sort of reinvention for contemporary yes. means. Yes. And it's in that respect quite politicised, the process of writing those novels. For feminist reasons, yes. for sociological reasons. Yeah. Do you think your work on that is done? I don't know. I, this, it seems... I'm not sure anymore that historical fiction is the most immediate way of commenting on the present, which is one of the things I was doing mm. in those novels. But people would say how nice it is, people have said how nice it is that Sarah has finally written a contemporary yes. novel, and yet all of your novels are all contemporary. Are contemporary yes. Irrespective of where, when yes. they're set. Yes, because I'm always writing to, for, and from the present moment. There's no other way of doing it. I mean, I can't write a 19th century novel, and why would I? Because there are hundreds of 19th century novels, if people want 19th century novels. Mm. 
So, I mean, I think that's true of all good historical fiction. Mm. And I also think one of the reasons some people think they don't like historical fiction is because they don't like nostalgia, which is a <coughs> sensible and intelligent position to take. Mm. But historical fiction can be the opposite of nostalgia. It can be a, an archaeology of the present. Mm. But you perhaps, as a reader, you still want 19th century novels, don't you? And you slightly regret the fact you've read them all. Yes. We were talking about book recommendations <laughs> yes. recently and you were sort of saying, I wish I hadn't read, I don't know, Zola, whoever it was. Yes. You wish you could read Middlemarch again because that's sort of what you feel you need now. Yeah. What, what, is, what is lacking in contemporary fiction that you feel you want to find Middlemarch again? Oh, I didn't particularly mean it was, I mean, you sent me some recommendations for contemporary novels that you thought did that and you were right. Probably not as well as Middlemarch does, but yeah. Nobody can do things as well as Middlemarch yeah. does. I like, I think, well, I was asking you for book recommendations at a moment when I was st stressed and travelling a lot and wanted mm. something I could just kind of inhabit mm. for a while, something I wouldn't finish quickly and it would feel real to me. I said, there's this little thing, grief, something, something, feathers. <laughs> but I read that the Brilliant. moment it came out. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Um, that was wanting a particular kind of reading, a particular yeah. kind of immersion. Yeah. Which I think is a minority taste. I mean, I do like reading Dickens on long train journeys. Um, and I'm absolutely sure that contemporary fiction can do that. Mm. I also think when the 19th century novel is being metafictional, it's doing it in less disruptive ways mm -hmm. than the contemporary novel. Do you think that's to do with pleasure? Do you think there was a different conception of readerly pleasure? Something to do with the serialization of novels and the moral, the moral function of novels or, or the pure entertainment function of novels that meant that better, better beginnings, better middles, better ends than we're now, than we're now accustomed to? I think to. it's more to do with predictability and it's playing with plot. I mean, you know reading Middlemarch because it starts with Dorothea that this has to be on some level a romance novel because all of those books that start with a single girl in her late teens are going mm. to end with a wedding. That's just what they do. But Elliot then kind of withdraws that and messes with it and gives you the dreadful Casabon instead and only really delivers the romantic ending when you've lost interest in it. But that requires a kind of sustained investment that's probably less common now. It's quite hard to make students read Middlemarch. Yeah. Well, Middlemarch is good, as is Dickens, as a, as a segue to the tidal zone, which can be described as a state of the nation novel is being described as state. I'm, I'm not sure about state of the nation novel because if one is, they all are. No, novels are state of the yes. nation, not they are state of the nations in which they are state of the consciousness yes. novels. They are state of masculinity. You know, the number of submissions I get at work which are about American masculinity. You we, mean it's written by an American man? We don't have enough novels about American masculinity, if you yeah. not notice. True. Well, that's what I crave. Um, <laughs> But let us talk about this, this possibly preposterous idea of a state of nature. One of the things we have to do as publishers is to fill in forms about books with market, market comparisons, sales points, keynotes. And we said amongst ourselves, who else writes state of the nation novels now in contemporary Britain? Everybody. Well, it's either everybody or nobody, but I mean, there are people, John Lanchester, you could say, had written a, a great State of the Nation novel. Sanjeev Sahota, I think, has written mm. what could be described as a great State of the Nation novel. But generally speaking, um, the, the sort of how things are books are sort of, in some respects, unfashionable. And that, I think, is because domestic fiction is unfashionable. Mm. This is a piece of domestic fiction yeah. in, in the great tradition of... Um, Elizabeth Taylor and Dorothy Whipple and, 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 yes. and, and Virginia Woolf to some extent. 
Um, but it's also a very modern novel, and I want to talk about why stylistically I think it's a very contemporary novel and the decisions you've made stylistically as a writer, as a prose stylist. But I think we should talk about the NHS and now yeah. and why you've chosen to discuss things that are contemporary and things that have angered you yes. but anger the character in this book slightly differently from how they anger yes. you. So yes. let's talk about the title zone and, and, and Adam. Yes. I'm interested, I was thinking when you talk about the state of the nation, I'm quite interested in the nation, I mean, particularly post-Brexit, I think we're all quite interested in the nation. But one of the things I was thinking about in the immediate aftermath of Brexit, when everybody I knew was kind of rummaging through their sock drawer, hoping they had an EU passport in there somewhere, and everybody else I knew was trying to you know, formulate some emigration plan. I mean, I don't want to go. Um, and I also think that novelists probably have quite a specific relationship with national identity because national identity is a narrative. And it's a narrative that we fight over a lot and it must be contested. I mean, an uncontested kind of nationality would be terrifying and is terrifying in many cases we can think of. Um, but to write in exile, as I was doing in Iceland, mm. is quite a different thing. Mm. Um, because you're not immersed in the language and the politics of the place that you're writing about. And I was only living in Iceland for a year, but I could see that it, that disconnection would happen very fast, uh, even with the internet. Mm. It, it's quite a different experience to be in the nation state that you're writing about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The book that Sarah wrote while she was in Iceland or afterwards is called Names for the Sea. It's remarkable. But you've written recently in response to Brexit about crisis, about yes. a national crisis, and you were, in, in, I mean, you were being provocative, but in some respects you were saying, chill out, these things happen, civilizations have crumbled, yes. terrible things are happening. This isn't perhaps the apocalyptic moment that certainly a writerly class have assumed it might be in order to flex some of their apocalyptic <laughs> muscles. What, would, would you paraphrase that piece? Because it was really interesting. I was, well, I, I'm not sure that I would be that optimistic now. Um, I was comparing uh, the, the post-Brexit panic with the Icelandic crepper because I was living in Iceland in 2009 when everything went very badly wrong very fast and was hearing a lot of rhetoric that sounded quite similar to the, the week or so after Brexit about how this was the end of everything and we'd woken up to a new country and the world was not as we thought it to be. Some of this was text messages from me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and feeling fundamentally betrayed, alienated, um, discovering that the country that you thought you belonged to maybe didn't want you or didn't belong to you in the way that you thought it did. And actually in Iceland, that settled down quite quickly and also opened up space for new forms of government and new kinds of citizenship and new new ways of claiming national identity. But I did mm. say at the time that I think I mean, it's a lot easier in Iceland, which has a population of 300,000, mm. uh, a pretty homogenous population as well. Um, and crucially, I think, doesn't have the English background of class. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a very divided society in any way. I mean, it, it's, it's more different than they think it is, but it's, it's not fractured in the way that, that ours is. We could perhaps give them our Boris Johnson if they like him. They wouldn't. <laughs> um, but this notion of rebuilding mm. is perhaps the theme yes. throughout all your books. We might be talking about the rebuilding of a city after it's been bombed. We might be talking about the rebuilding of a family after it's been shattered. We might even be talking about the rebuilding of a marriage after the simple yes. shock of having a baby and no one getting any yeah. sleep. <laughs> um, so let us go on to this, this book. 
Adam is writing a. I always say he's writing a book. It's very it's contemporary. He's not writing a book. He's writing a multimedia. He's app. writing a geolocative media app. Pray tell.、Um, you all know what a geolocative media app is, of course. <laughs> Some people do.、Um, it's a technology that allows you to pin sound files to particular points,、um, so that if somebody downloads the right app, they will hear your sound file as they move around a space. And I came across this when I was living in Cornwall, and somebody was doing a project, to, you know, getting funding for a project to do a geolocative media app. And I was kind of intrigued by it and kind of annoyed by it because I think, why not just write a book? So that's what Adam ends up doing because somebody at the entirely invented university where he works、um, has a large grant,、uh, which depends on impact because this is what large grants do depend on these days. Which means you have to make your research accessible to the general public, as imagined by the research council, which may not be as imagined by anybody else. So Adam's, Burn. <laughs>、um, Adam's kind of been brought in to do the fluffy bit around the edges. The real academics are going to do the proper research, and Adam, who otherwise describes himself as one of the unemployed with PhDs, is just supposed to kind of fill in this fluffy bit that nobody else can be bothered with. But it takes over his life. What I find ironic about it, mean, I've no idea what you're talking about, really. In some, you know, the apps, and, you know, this Pokemon stuff. I have no idea what I'm talking about. But it seems ironic because the people that are going to churches and being doing、yes. little daily tours are, are, are usually the elderly, the、yes. sort of cultured elderly, and they're, like, they're going to be walking into different parts with their thing, and they're going, and they're going <laughs> "Who is this man?" Yes.、Um, but what he is particularly profoundly in the book concerned with is is the effort to rebuild. Yes. Would you? Shall we read this next bit? I mean,、sure. I actually saw someone on Twitter at a certain point saying they'd love this book, and but they they didn't. They were, you know, they, they were sort of in terms of the the, the tragedy that Miriam experiences. They're like,、mm-hmm. but the Coventry Cathedral stuff,、yeah. they love. That was weird. Well, I mean, I, 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 each to their own. <laughs>、yes. But I think, I mean, you know, I, I, many people have had this experience. The Coventry Cathedral stuff seems as a portrait of 20th century Britain,、yeah. and as you say, your your, preoccupa- your preoccupation with hope. Um, and the possibility always that in crisis there is movement forward. That there is something, there is a kernel of progressiveness in any in any political disaster. I don't know about any. Okay, most. Well, I think it, the, the potential is there in any, isn't it? Because most, like, isn't it a physical thing? If there's if there's destruction, there's always a possibility of growth. Yeah, but a physical thing isn't necessarily a political thing. Well, we'll see, won't we? Yes. Vote Caroline Lucas. Um, I just think maybe we did see in 1939, but yeah, okay. But it's bound up with you, I think, with the arts and crafts movement、yes. and, with, and with the creative thing, and yet again with the domestic thing, because it, your your books are object worlds. Yeah. They are concerned with very often with the handmade and with the with the voiced and with the, with the transmuted between person、yes. to person. What you're doing is handing on the possibility of a certain type of building or reimagining,、yeah. and what we what we see in Coventry is this happening. Played out,、yes. you know, on this stage, and when、uh, the great irony slash beauty of that is that it was church that、yes. that was the question. So let's read this extraordinary.、Yes. There are these passages about Basil Spence in the book, which are really stunning. 
Thank you. Um, so this is Adam writing about the West Screen, which is his and not coincidentally my favourite bit of the cathedral. And he's been sort of saving this. He's been working his way around Coventry Cathedral, writing about the, the building or the making or the designing of, of each bit. So to that extent, it's a fairly traditional kind of church guide. But he's been holding back the West Screen um, for himself until the end. And this is very near the end of the book. This section's called Angels in Rage. The West Screen. It had been part of Spencer's first vision of the cathedral. During the faint in the dentist's chair, when he gazed from the ruins to the yet unwoven Christ in glory, through the translucent bodies of saints and angels. The West Screen is really what I'm visiting when I return to the cathedral. Because more than anything else, it changes with the seasons, with the angle of the sun and the tilt of the earth. It's not really a screen because it's clear glass, a wall or a cliff of clear glass rising or falling the full height of the new cathedral and forming a window between the ruins and the new building so that the engraved saints and angels stand, leap, writhe, float between the present and the past. I've seen their shadows on a winter's night reach down from the darkened wall of the new building, their long feet and fingers plucking, but on a summer's day they wander the ruins, haunt the ruins. They're not friendly, not cherubic. Long dead, wasted, monomaniac as saints must be. An early critic remarked approvingly that he wouldn't like to meet one on a dark night. I do. I like to meet them on a dark night. John Hutton and Basil Spence had both worked in camouflage units during the war. The whole cathedral is part of the work of that war and had kept an eye on each other's progress since. Hutton, posted to the Middle East, had become so good at hiding British air bases that RAF pilots couldn't find them from the air so good at making dummy airstrips that returning Allied pilots tried to land on them. The British Army was so woefully ill-equipped that much of this part of the war appears to have been conducted through the theatre arts. Coffee beans from sunk cargo ships scattered to suggest shadows at the bottom of the harbour in Alexandria. Scuttled warships hastily repainted with fake shadows so that from the air they appeared unharmed. Painted guns and false shadows, the theatre of war, Hutton had left his wife and infant twin sons living in an intentional community of artists and academics in an Elizabethan manor house in Suffolk. There's another novel there for someone. <laughs> he kept sketchbooks throughout the war. Refugees arriving at the great London stations from across the Channel. Soldiers in the military hospital in Cairo. Bodies in ditches along the roads in Normandy. The same roads from which Spence was looking at the burnt-out medieval churches of rural France. Bodies on stretchers an Eritrean soldier pouring a drink into the mouth of a dying comrade. He was never on the front line, but often in the aftermath. Before the war, he'd made murals, surrealist, for the first-class cabins and dining rooms of ocean liners. He'd painted clocks, not now. He came home, his marriage founded. He worked alongside Spence on the Festival of Britain. Murals, not glass, not until Cunard wanted some glass panels for the restaurant on the RMS Coronia. He designed them, but the engraving was done by London Sandblast, and he was intrigued. Wheel engraving, brilliant cutting, sandblasting, ways of writing on thin air. Glasses, melted sand, seashells repeatedly transmuted, solid to powder, powder to liquid, liquid to solid, and still sand writes on glass. One cannot but also think of sea glass, of the windows of lost ships. Next came the window in the chapel of the Commonwealth Air Force's memorial, his first glass angels, faces averted already, 
the trumpets making such raucous music at Coventry already present, but soft, symmetrical, nothing to alarm. Spence knew from the beginning that he wanted Hutton to make the West screen. Alternate rows of saints on panels, Spence said, a checkerboard of plain and engraved windows. Hutton started sketching and didn't like the regularity. A letter came from the engineer, who was working out how to suspend so much glass. Reinforced mullions, he said, no choice, gravity is gravity. Hutton's new design was an answer to that. Flight, dance, leaping, leaning, jumping, rising, writhing. He drew new panels, angels in flight, in resistance, ghost angels, refugee angels, angels in rage, in protest, in agony. Nobody sees the mullions, only the movement, only the fight, the energy, the dance. Their trumpets sound the music of the ghettos, of the camps. I am reminded of Sebald's account of the troops of entertainers drifting through the warmer parts of Europe in the late 1940s, concentration camp survivors who danced and made music and had nothing to say to anyone who had not been where they had been. The saints anchor the angels, but there's no comfort here. Abraham raises his knife. St. Cuthbert is cowled like the grim reaper, his face sharp and fallen as if after a long dying. Look on St. Mary from the new building and you see the young mother. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. But from the other side, the agony of the cross has fallen over her face. It is not all right. It is not all right, but there is beauty. We have ways of saying that it is not all right, that there is death and suffering and evil. And they are the same ways we have had for hundreds of years. Buildings, glass, weaving, and words. Thank you. Oh, it's beautiful. <clears throat> um, I love that because I'm, I'm so interested in, I mean, I'm, we, you know, the discussions we have had about British modernism, particularly. So if the sort of moral of the book is that you acknowledge the agony and, and the pain, but there is always the possibility to still make things that are beautiful. Yeah. Let us shrink it from the stage of a, of a huge building in the middle of a bombed city into a house. Yes. And how do you... Adam's challenge, Adam's philosophical game, if you like, mm -hmm. in this book, is how to relate this pain, this shock that they have experienced in their family, which actually is okay, his daughter Miriam is alive, with the pain of the world, mm -hmm. which he is hearing on the news, he's engaging yeah. with... Adam is a kind man. I yes. think ultimately that's the point of him as yes, a character, right? He's a good bloke. Yeah. And he cares and he is he is relentlessly mocked and interrogated by these these daughters and this wife and he and he's perhaps failing on all sides in some respects to hold this thing together, but his job is to hold this thing together and the private challenge he has set himself is to reconcile these two things. Why 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 did you go about that? Is that because in some respects that's the challenge of our yes. of our time? Yes. Um there were, well, there were, there were two answers to that, really. Um, I think one of the things that's, that's really hard about living here and now, and as I say that, I think it's ridiculous to say this is hard because it would be much harder to do it any other way, but it's our constant knowledge about what's happening in the world and the need to reconcile that somehow with our own very safe and pleasant and comfortable lives and how to do that in a way that doesn't silence 
either of those narratives. And while I was writing this book, um, we, we always have a little day program on in the mornings. And I was listening to it and there was a report from a bombed city in Syria and a man standing in the ruins shouting, where is the world? Where is the world while this is happening? And I remember the translator translating it very flatly without, without the emotion. And I kind of froze making the packed lunches in my kitchen, thinking, here, he, here, you know, we, we hear you. The BBC has brought you here. I can hear you. But I have no idea what to do. I, I have no, you know, the fact of my hearing is useless, completely useless. And I have no idea what I might be able to do that would show that I've heard or that my hearing has made any difference at all to anything at all. I, I mean, I don't have an answer to that. But I think we experience that moment very often. And it is absolutely wrong to say, oh, well, you know, people just do die far away. And you quite often notice it on the news. There'll be a very detailed account of a much smaller scale tragedy near at hand. And then, oh, and by the way, another, you know, 35 people died at a market in Iraq today. Mm. You think, hang, hang on a minute. And it's not that I think you shouldn't do that, but I don't know how, but that is, how you live with it well. You, none of us can live with it well. That is the survival mechanism of a very imbalanced world. Yes. The world is grotesquely imbalanced yes. and grot grotesquely unfair. Yeah. Adults seem to shut something off and carry on. Yes. One of the times in life when you refuse to let that outrage stop burning is when you're a teenager. Yes. And one of the questions teenagers ask their parents is, how the f can you live <laughs> yeah. with this? And I don't want my packed lunch, thank you. And I don't yes. care about these salty crisps. Yes. I mean, Adam is, uh, you know, and I, I in fact attacked you on this during the process. <laughs> They're ridiculous about not letting the kids eat chocolate and sweets and everything. And I, and I was like, God, I'm a bad parent. I just let my kids eat anything. <laughs> Um, and yet I'm still making them like, listen, listen to this on Radio 4, it's important you hear this. And they're like, quite rightly, Dad, I'm three. Give me some time to just, you know, maybe, maybe stop me eating so much sugary stuff first and we'll deal with the atrocities of the world later. But Miriam is an extraordinary creation because she is exactly at that moment. Yes. She's had this thing happen to her. The last thing she's going to do is, is, is admit to being frightened or scared. Yeah. So she puts all this fear combined with what you have to say, she's an, she's an unusual character in that she's exceptionally intelligent. Yeah. And some of that is based in your life because you have exceptionally intelligent kids. Oh, I do. Who, like, who would just come in here and be like, read it, read it, read it, read it. They're brilliant. But let's talk about Miriam because she is... She is very, very angry. She's very, very clever. She sees in Adam this sort of sparring partner. Yes. He engages and then doesn't because he recognises he's got to let her be herself. Yes. And it's a sort of dance they're doing yeah. around this silent fear that yes. this might happen again, that yes. life is always... I mean, you, you don't have a teenage daughter. No. Did you go to your own story? Did you... There's probably a bit of me. I, also, I mean, I teach. I teach undergraduates. And, of course, they're a bit older. Um, but they're 17 when I start talking to them um, and you know, 21 when they leave. And you can kind of see in a 17-year-old what they were like a couple of years ago. Um, and I do sometimes go into schools and talk to people. Smelly. Yes. <laughs> well, they're girls. Um, I think, I don't know, the same way when I was writing Night Waking, I felt that there were not very, very real toddlers in contemporary fiction. I think certainly contemporary adult fiction is not serving teenagers very well. And I think so much of what we read about teenagers has them as these kind of lump and sullen people who aren't engaged, and particularly teenage girls are only really interested in shopping and boys and hair. And that is so much not my experience of that generation in, in any way. And I think sometimes it's easy, 
it's easy to mock teenagers partly because of what we've done to their future. And if we think that the 15-year-olds are in fact intelligent, engaged, angry citizens who can see exactly what's going on in the world and don't like it and can't vote, that feels a bit different from just thinking, oh, well, you know, they're just silly little teenagers who are always on their phones and worrying about what the latest fashion in tights might mm. be. But I, I know lots of, you know, lots of 17, 18, 19-year-olds who are every bit as politically switched on as their, their professors, and in many ways more so. Mm. Um, so I wanted that. I wanted to write about that and about the the experience of parenting adolescents, which I think is enormous fun and and challenging and exciting and and really not as driven by conflict as it as it often seems to be. Hmm. So therefore, it's a project in empathy. You're 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 creating this case study where every, everybody's sort of lines of empathy are sort of challenged and, and heightened. Yes. Is he truly understanding what it's like for Miriam? It can is is there room in Miriam's blazing rage and joining up with the Green Party and <laughs> amnesty to work out that her dad might be scared as well? And then we have Emma, who's a completely different yes. case because she's busy out there earning the money and feeling that she's failing. It's very complex. But you are writing this as a as a man. Yeah. How 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 was that? It was fine. It's not very difficult. Um, <laughs> did I say things like make him simpler? Yes, you, you know you said things like make I him did, simpler. Yeah. Sometimes I did make him simpler. Um, I said I do remember once or twice saying I think around about now he might think about his penis. <laughs> <laughs> and I inserted a penis thought because yeah. yes. Oh. <laughs> I. <laughs> the best editorial yeah, advice money can yeah, buy. It's brilliant, brilliant. Um, I think that in this country, for a white middle class woman to write as a white middle class man is nothing like yeah. as challenging as it would be to cross the class divide. Um, I mean, I think that's probably been true for about 200 years. I, I, it came to me very strongly when I was working on my book on 18th century gender. Actually, gender's really not what it's about for the upper classes in the 18th century. If you're rich, you can do pretty much what you like, and it doesn't matter very much whether you're male or female. And, you know, despite my feminist views about academia, academic pay scales, and the Marxist professoriat, I think that's still really true. Um, and it's quite liberating to write as the other sex. Mm. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I can imagine doing it again. Well, we, you worked your way into it because <clears throat> Tom, the character in Science for Lost yes. Children, half the book is in his, his male voice, which was ne always 100% convincing, possibly in some senses more convincing than the female voice while you're working on it because the female voice was bound up with so many of your yes. other concerns to do with mental health and to do with actually what you were trying to say in feminist terms about the development of that profession for women. Whereas Tom was a man in yeah. Japan, seeing the world, and you yes. went to Japan and you saw the world and you felt how that would have been for a man, you know, yeah. the sort of sight lines are clearer. I think we should talk about creative writing because it's a divisive thing, increasingly yes. in this country it's a divisive thing. You are a professor of creative writing at Warwick. Do you believe in it? With qualifications, yes. I think it's really important that universities don't suggest to 18-year-olds that if they come and do a creative writing degree, they will leave with a publishing contract and go on into life as a professional writer, because that's not true. Mm. I also think that, as in any humanities subject, if you're doing it for instrumental reasons, you've probably made a pretty grave mistake already. So I'm happy with the teaching of creative writing as long as it's happening as part of an English degree. 
And it can just be a different way of teaching text. I mean, I make people read at least as much on my creative writing modules as I do on my romanticism modules. It's just a slightly more freewheeling selection of texts. We probably think harder about issues of narrative mm -hmm. and theory and creative writing than when I'm teaching the 18th century. Yeah. So I think as long as everybody's absolutely clear about what's being done and why, mm. it's fine. I also, I mean, nobody worries very much about music colleges or art schools mm -hmm. or dance colleges. So if we accept the premise that art is something to some extent that you learn, I don't quite see why writing should be any different from playing the cello or yeah. doing ballet or... It's always been a problem though, hasn't it? It's like the thousand hours thing, hundred thousand hours thing. Yeah. Um, but that is one of the things that an institution like that is fostering, is real real conversations. And you invite writers to come and yes. tell these people what it's like yes. and how publishing contracts work and what a rejection is and yes. those sorts of things. And it's sort of real world. It's almost, what I like, I went to see Sarah's students and they were all really rigorous and interesting bunch of people. They were all fired up and interested in each other's work and everything. And on the other side of the campus, there was a really angry protest going on and all that, you know, there was yeah. like massive fuck the Tories banners and everything across the campus. And I said, so guys, what's going on? And they were like, don't know. <laughs> we're talking about Coleridge. <laughs> they weren't. They were, they, they were real people. Um, can I read another bit from your blog? Or would you like uh, to read it? Which bit is it? It's brilliant. Yeah, there's no one from Warwick here. No. Nah. Warwick. Oh, there is. No, right. You've heard it all before. It's okay. Oh, he won't mind. He won't mind. Someone, another writer who wanted me to do something for which he thought himself too busy, recently said, goodness me, you are prolific. Is that how he speaks? Goodness me, you are prolific. That'll do. I was perhaps unreasonably annoyed. He sounded like the Lord of the Manor talking about a fecklessly fertile peasant. Male poets do sometimes have that air as they speak of female novelists. I came home and expressed my views perhaps at some length and was reminded that I had published eight books in the last seven years and that however irritating the conversation might have been, that is quite a lot. Yes, I said, but one of those books is co-authored, one of them is very short, and one is an academic monograph. And anyway, the point is that prolific makes it sound easier as if I just fart and another book comes out. <laughs> now, compared to almost every other... That's writing like a bloke, Sarah. Brilliant. <laughs> it's just ghosted. Now, compared, compared to almost every other way of making a living, there's a sense in which writing books is easy. You can do it in cafes while sipping something nice, at home wearing pyjamas with a cat on your lap, in a beautiful old library where silence is the rule and no one's allowed to bother you. You can stop at any moment to go for a walk in the sunshine or get your hair cut or nip around the shops. Blah, blah, blah. This is not nursing or mining or primary school teaching. It's not general practice or banking. There are no hours, no dress code and no line managers. I'm not suggesting that in those terms writing, or for the matter of that most other creative practices, are hard work. Writing may not be hard work, but it is difficult work. Mm. That's brilliant, I think. And so you are engaged in this long-term project. Um, I don't want to do the boring thing of saying what's next, but I know that you will, you are writing novels and you are perhaps yeah. now with this book more engaged than ever in what it means to be writing novels now and what the yeah. style of the book might do to enable you to tell the story. For those of you that haven't read this book, there is this subplot, this sort of patterning, these, these sort of pauses in the book which are Adam's, if you like, creation tale. They're where he, in this moment of crisis, traces back his family and their stories from around the world. And it's an immigration tale. Yeah. There, are, there, are, there are worldly reasons why you did that, and there are narrative, architectural reasons why you did it. There is also, I think, a stylistic reason. You are getting more stylish as a writer. You're taking greater risks. You seem to have yes. more confidence in, in shorter forms, yes. in, in, in more self-conscious modes of yes. writing and framing. Are you enjoying it? Yes. 
I am. And one of the things I was thinking, one of the things I was kind of testing to destruction with this book is, is narrative traditions that, I mean, it starts once upon a time, which is not a thing you do lightly. And I was thinking throughout about how, I mean, it's, it's a truism of medical education that you go to the doctor when your narrative is broken, right? If you have a headache and you've spent the day outside in the sun and you haven't had enough to drink, you're not very likely to go to the doctor. You'll probably just have a drink of water and it'll get better because you know that story. If you wake up in the night feeling like that, you're more likely to be worried. So actually what drives us to seek healing is a narrative problem on some level. Um, I mean, I, you know, I run a lot, far too much, and my knee usually hurts a bit. This does not send me to the doctor because I know exactly why my knee hurts, and I know exactly what I could do to stop my knee hurting if I wanted to, which I don't, so it's fine. If somebody who didn't run felt like that and didn't have a reason, they would go to the doctor. So in very fundamental ways, narrative is kind of what keeps us alive. I mean, you know, you, you seek medical help when your narrative is broken. And you want your doctor to put it back together. And some of the work that you do with a good doctor is finding a story that's acceptable to both of you, a story that explains whatever symptom it is you're having and offers you a future. A diagnosis is a story. But sometimes your story just breaks. You know, if you are in a car accident or if a plane falls out of the sky onto you or perhaps if your country degenerates into civil war or, I don't know, if your partner walks out on you for no reason whatsoever... You have no story for it, you have no narrative, then what do you do? And that's kind of the question of this book. And at first, Adam is scrabbling for stories and constructing narratives around himself as a, as a kind of house, as a space that he can live in while they work through all of these awful things that are happening. But towards the end, I really wanted the narrative just to sort of dissolve a bit, which I, I, I hope is, is what happens. And he works his way through stories increasingly fast and discards them with increasing abandon. And it felt towards the end as if I was kind of coming through those narrative structures and being able to just toss them in the air and let them smash and say, hey, look, we've got some bits. Mm -hmm. And there's a lovely thing, the feature, which I was particularly keen on myself, is this, the, raven, the raven creation tales, the North American creation tales, which in a way are, as you said, they're sort of hurtled into and, and chucked to one side yeah. because there is our path and it isn't, it isn't a, a, as a train goes. It's this sort yes. of beautiful lateral collapsing, crunching forward. And here I am on a balcony and my daughter is still alive yes. and I don't know what the, to make of all this. Yes. Um, and in that there is this sort of poise which harks right back to the, the moment when your baby is asleep in night waking yes. or the moment when you, you, know, you are finally free of your bullying mother in bodies of light. There is this sort of, you are a happy ending merchant in, in yes. some of these rather bleak scenarios yes. because you don't want to shit, sorry, you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to put your reader in, in any kind of discomfort and leave them there. No. The point is that you're showing them roots yes. out, which is a generosity of spirit, but it's also a deeply pleasurable reading experience. We have to take questions from the floor, but before we do, and obviously I have many reasons to, to lie to you about this, but I'm not going to. This is a really, really, really good book. The responses to this book so far have been more or less that. It is literally breathtaking, someone said today. It's provocative and funny, very funny, very sad, utterly true. We are all, I think, at this time in our, in, in our nation's lives, we are craving truth from the tiniest descriptions of our daily lives to the biggest things, and it's truthful and gorgeous to read. And I think, I mean, I like all your books. I think there's something happening here which you haven't done before, and it's really, really wonderful. Thank you. Uh, let's have some questions. 
can I just ask you about how you go about your titling of your subsections? Because I just think they're amazing. Thank and sometimes you. I just read those three or four words and put it aside for a few hours and don't even read the chapter because I want to sit with those words before I move in. And sometimes it's hard even just to get one title, but you have like 20, 25 of them in one book. They're really good, aren't they? Yeah. I still have trouble with the title for the book. I wanted to call this Object Constancy and he wouldn't let me. <laughs> I, write, I mean, I write the sections first and then, then find the words. And sometimes they're not the ones I would have expected at all, and sometimes I change it, and I was making quite late changes. Mm. One, one so, time I suggested one, you're like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's very beautiful. No. <laughs> but you did, this started in Science for Lost Children. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's a very nice way, it, 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 it somehow forces the reader into a slightly self-conscious, but sort of padded, a, a bit like wearing yeah, snippers as you're reading a book. You're sort of given this little thing and invited in. And then you read the chapter in a certain... It's a bit like hearing a motif at the beginning of a piece of music, and then when you get to that motif, you think, ah. And it's the sort of back brain thing. I think it's very delicate. What's your favourite part of the writing process? Oh, I like that first draft stage. Where, actually, no, my absolute favourite bit is the, the late bit when you're just fiddling with the minor details. I will very happily spend hours <laughs> changing a semicolon to a full stop and then changing it back again. That's a really fun afternoon for me. It's sweet though because you say leave, leave me to do this, I'm doing that thing now where I'm just going through it and fiddling around with commas and then we have to instruct the copy editor not to fiddle with Sarah's commas. <laughs> Yes. We've tried a lot. We've tried a few copy editors now. They, they, they all, they've all had a go, haven't they? And they've got this brick wall. No, I think I, you know, it's, I won't actually paraphrase your angry emails about it, but it goes along the lines of, I, I think I've, you know, I've studied the novel for many years. I actually teach it. I've written a fair few of them now. I think I know the difference between a colon and a comma. <laughs> well, and what makes them think that by that particular semicolon, I might have meant a comma? I mean, I do we think I haven't thought about Madness, it? Madness, Sarah. It's... I don't know. <laughs> so I don't like being copy edited, but I do very much like that late, very fine tuning. And Just we love the, 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 the typesetting is good. I mean, seeing yes. a thing, especially when it's quite, as you say, there are these there are these devices in this that do things to the reader. There's these there's these different threads, and when you see it set like that, it's lovely. Yeah. it's really lovely. And this bloke, we should also we should also give a shout out oh, to yes. this man, Michael Gaskell. Michael Gaskell, who let us use this astonishing portrait, which, if you hadn't realised, is an acrylic portrait, painted portrait of his niece, and we all got this amazing recognition that it may, it may or may not be Miriam for the reader, that doesn't matter, it's tiresome when books tell you what the characters look like, but it is nevertheless someone with a, a lot going on mm. in their head. Um, I'm going to be the person tiresomely over-identifying with the characters, and um, Adam's constantly not saying the things that he's thinking. Yes. What's going on there? Um, I'm thinking there partly about how Adam's ambition in life is to, to love his wife and daughters, really. That's his overwhelming ambition. And I was thinking about how much of love is not saying things um, and how much of kindness is just not telling people when they're annoying you. And particularly in a domestic situation where people tend to do the same things over and over again, there has to be a level of tolerance. I mean, I know the things I do that annoy my husband, and I can't always be bothered to stop doing them. And he doesn't say. And it's that not saying, actually, that, it, that is the act of love, particularly if you've thought of the words for it, and then you don't say them. 
Um, so that, that's what Adam's doing. He's loving people by not telling them things. <laughs> I just realised I could be a better person. That's <laughs> <laughs> so true, though. What I like about Adam is that he, he, he says, um, you know, there are those breathless sentences, but, and he says, but I did not say... <laughs> like that kind of that therapy yes. in action. And then you see what he does say. We haven't talked about Emma, and I worry about that. A little bit. Emma is his wife who, who is working and it's difficult. But I think actually we don't need to talk about that. She's a big character in the book yeah. and, she, and she's utterly, utterly credible. Um, and you'll find her if you read the book. So I don't feel too bad about not talking about Emma. I like Emma. She's probably Nobody at work, isn't she? Yes. Neglecting us. Well, not neglecting us if we're her patient. No, true. You might have sort of answered this already in, in, in talking about the, the tumbling kind of language. His, as you just said, the sort of cathartic explosion that, that is internal. Um, as you've said a bit, you compared to Bodies of Light, um, this is a much more free kind of exercise. Bodies of Light is in some way formally very, very traditional. I mean, it's not in some ways, but um, I wondered, and, and this might just be, as Max says, you loosening up in some way, enjoying the, the freer form. I wondered how you felt that freer, more tumbling sort of sentence, almost if you just want to get into the sentence level, um, reflects going back to sort of the state of national consciousness or the state of personal consciousness and sort of the centre cannot hold idea yeah. in, in modern, in sort of modern life. I just wanted you to talk a bit about that stylistic sort of development, perhaps. Oh, that's challenging. Um, <laughs> it was partly just fun. It was partly just feed, I suppose, growing, growing confidence and a growing sense of ownership of the, the form of my novels. I don't about the form of the novel, but certainly the form of my novels. And this is, this is partly a book about the failure of narrative. Um, and for that reason, I worried about the ending for quite a long time. You know, what, what, what do you do with a book that's about the disintegration of narrative? What, what might the ending look like? So I think I'm just enjoying letting it come apart a bit. Um, it's... It's all about the beauty, the beauty of ruins, the beauty of broken things. So you can do that with sentences as well. I've got one. <clears throat> Someone, one of your reviews was said the most incredible opening, blah, 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 wonderful book, Sarah Moss's unrivaled, blah, blah, blah. And then it said, but the, there is this, the, the reader feels hectored. The reader feels yes. ticked off by this book, which I thought was an extraordinary misreading because... The whole point of Adam as a creation is he's, he knows what he's doing. Yes. He knows that he is completely tied up in this ridiculous over-analytical over yes. sense of his own worth as a stay-at-home dad, etc., etc., etc. The poor guy is doing that. The reader doesn't feel... Any, I don't think there's any of that for the reader. I don't think this is a novel that lectures anyone on how to live or suggests even... It's not the even, plan. It's not the plan. And I think to read it that way is very interesting... It would be like, you know, you read American Psycho. Are you being encouraged to go and do that to people? I, I really don't. I think it's very odd. And similarly, you know, Marquis de Sade. I mean, where do you stop yes. the, the thinking that that's a preposterous way of reading novels? But you do, you, there are points you are trying to make, but they are actually possibly in the American bits and in the Coventry bits yes. rather than in the, yes. in the domestic bits, aren't they? Yes, I think so. And where they're in the domestic bits, Miriam's usually making them quite loudly and clearly. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's no doubt what Miriam thinks. <laughs> Rose, we haven't mentioned Rose, Miriam's sister. I she just wants she's a cat. She's okay, she just wants a cat. <laughs> yeah. I was just wondering how you balance being an academic with being a novelist 
and do those identities overlap enough? And because you talked a bit about well being very prolific, but also the ref and having colleagues and things. So I was wondering how you navigate all of that. I like it. I like both. And partly because I was an academic before I was a novelist. Um, I don't do very well with long stretches of unstructured time. So the, the rhythm of teaching and going into work and to doing the school one and all of that actually, actually suits me very well, makes me much more productive. Um, I have research leave coming up next term and I'm slightly worried that I might just spend it kind of going around in circles in my study and then scrapping it all and going for a run and not really produce as much as I do when I've got set things to do. My blog, to the contrary, I do enjoy having colleagues and many of my colleagues are great and interesting and it's nice to, to work with writers and mostly the students. I mean, our, our students are great and I really enjoy teaching and talking to them. So I, I think for me it's, it's a pretty happy situation, but I know it's not for some writers. Poor things. You, I, I would often try and medicate you with, like, you know, you're going to go mad, go for a run. Yes. But she, she's one of these people that already does all that. <laughs> and you think, right, what could I devise that would really distract Sarah from the incoming reviews or from the, the not rushing on the net, whatever it is. So I think, oh, knitting, sure enough, she's like a world-class knitter. Not world-class knitter. Actually, I, think I, world I want class Sarah to write, we can tell everyone this, I think. I want Sarah to write the feminist history oh, of knitting. Yeah. I keep threatening to write the feminist history of knitting. Do it. <laughs> Do it. Take a break from the novels. Don't take a break from the novels. <laughs> Um, well, if that's it, it's, it's three minutes past. It's perfect timing. Thank you all very much. Thank you to the LRB for hosting us. Thank you, Max. Title zone out now. Yes, indeed, isn't it? And, and, the, other, and the other books. And the others. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.